0: G'day, folks. It's the coach here, and I have a s- sexy. Well, one, you are sexy, Gavin, my bearded, <laughs> bearded friend. Um, but two, I've got a really interesting topic that I want to talk to you about. Um, so for the folks at home who don't know who this man is, this is Gavin Gringer. I butchered that name, didn't I? Gringer. Uh, the
1: Gringer. Yeah, was. Yeah, I was it. trying to
0: make sure I didn't say the end because, like, I was typing your name out. And I'm like, I call it G R I N G E R.
1: Oh, Gringer. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah was but I'm the, like, no, um, no, no. The uh, world's captain did that to you. He put it out on Twitter as Gavin Gringer. So that was my introduction into Twitter was being tagged by uh, Mr. Jeremy Vessieri
0: as a uh, Gavin Gringer. So it <laughs> it's good. your it's your Hispanic <laughs> counterpart in Mexico, like <laughs> like El El Gavin. But yeah. <laughs> more importantly if people don't know Gavin he first off he's on the channel 6 months ago funnily enough talking about cities of sigma and living cities ironically because 6 months later this gentleman would go on and win the Las Vegas Open 2022 like 180 players you went 5 and 0 oh during the five rounds and then they went into like a knockout final and you had won the three games obviously um going up against A whole bunch of cool cats, including Levan, who you might have seen on the channel, talking zombies. But Gavin, co-host of Harambe's Heroes, um, I want to talk to you about your hero's journey. So less about Living City, because I think, you know, you exploited some great rules. You played really well. But I don't think that's important. I don't think the rule set is important. And you played your ass off. I watched you in the final. I was keeping on track. I had all my little kitty cats at the tournament kind of giving <laughs> updates and giving me, telling me what was going on. Since there was no stream from from uh, Frontline Gaming, please, next year, let's get a stream happening. <laughs> Although I don't care. I'm coming next year. Like, it doesn't matter. But I want to know what it takes to be a tournament player and I say this because there are a lot of people who are going to watch this stream and they will either have never been to a tournament. I was literally only talking to somebody yesterday about getting into the competitive scene and, you know, there's a bit of concern and, you know, oh, I don't know if I'm ready or like, I don't want to go to a tournament. And there's this idea that, you know, we're, we're all going to be running dragons and fulminators like yourself, but it's not the case. Yeah. Not <laughs> everyone is doing what you did. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all tongue in cheek, but more importantly, <laughs> There's a lot of players who go to tournaments and they might go one and four, two and three, uh, three and two, and they want to get into the top brackets. They want a podium. One of their goals is to win a major event, to be best in faction. They want to be the, the greatest sons player. Or they want to be the best daughters player, whatever their aspirations are. And I know for a fact that you didn't just rock up to the LVO. You had practiced deliberately there's a whole bunch of great things that I've picked up from you from Harambe's Heroes. You were on a, um, a Goonhammer pod, uh, blog. Um, you've kind of discussed these things with me in the past. So I want to get into your head. How's yes. that sound?
1: Yes, that sounds great, dude. Uh, and <laughs> I appreciate you calling me sexy, man. I appreciate that. I don't wow. hear that one every day. So
0: well, Gareth, Gareth in the chat telling us that it's, uh, I thought it was a Sigmar show, but it's the sexiest beard show. Oh, there you go. Fun, funnily enough, in the UK, um, there's a gentleman called Tom Morsley who was talking about like, you know, how we, you know, we used to call people who brought like heartless beardy and he wanted mm-hmm. the term beardy come back. I'm like, yeah, man, I want to be, oh, I, I will lean into that. that, that. I'm like, yeah, man, I will take all the filth uh, because I got to be beardy. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that you want to add to this introduction i I know i just gave you like this massive like monologue
1: no so good man um i appreciate all the shout outs you you fit in like more than the uh more than the acceptable amount like four or five times i appreciate that and then the um kind of piggybacking off what you're saying about the new tournament players is um the easiest way is just do it i think that's that'd be my advice um you can kind of readjust your expectations and then what it takes to meet those expectations after you've kind of taken the plunge and played at first, but to get into it, you just got to go, just do it, go hang out. And then that's the easiest way to catch the Warhammer bug that I've found is just going there meeting all the people because the people are what keeps you coming back. So that's my advice yep. to new
0: players. My advice has always been is um, realign your expectations, you know, go in there with an expectation of meeting five cool people, having five good games you know, do as well as you possibly can, but don't worry and put the pressure on about trying to podium and, you know, do really well. Obviously, if you come from like a historical background of playing, you know, 40K or Warhammer Fantasy and you've got some experience, maybe that's a little bit differently, but go in, learn, and then build up over time. That's kind of been my goal. But for most people, they just want to play with their war dollies for two, for two days and, and have a good game and have yep. some beers. And, yeah, you'll, you'll face some tough lists, um you know, you know, NPE is not really a thing. Like, you'll fight some really tough lists, but it's all legal. It's just hard games that you'll learn, you'll grow, and the meta adapts. It wasn't long ago that Suns were NPE. Now we're talking about, you know, long strikes and dragons. And, you know, a couple of months later, we'll be talking about something else. Like, the cycle continues. We all we all live in the sun, and then we all crash <laughs> down to the bottom at some point. Yeah, agreed.
1: So everything's cyclical for sure.
0: It's the circle of life. That's why you have multiple <laughs> armies. So when you're a goomside Gits player and you're not doing very well, you've got something to jump up. But um, Sneak Peek, Gavin's actually at the L- at the Lone Star Open this weekend running git. So we'll find out what madness he has on the coming up. Yeah. But I- but I do want to get into your head. Like I'm-, I'm conscious of time. I've got to do some job interviews for some people I'm hiring, but I want to get into like the topic, right? Because you've obviously had an incredible run and you're not just a a lucky draw. You know, you've been consistently doing well in the competitive scene leading up to the LVO. So it's not like you just had this mad Hail Mary pass and you absolutely just, you know, scored this major win. You've done it over time. So I guess, take me back to the LVO what was it like winning for you? Is this Was this a goal of yours for the last 12 months? Is this like life-changing for you? Are you now pro and you get all the the cash and the women and the boats <laughs> and stuff? Like what actually happens when I win an event? Uh, well, you
1: don't get any of those things. So that's terrible. We should work on that as a community. It'd be awesome to give the LVO winner, you know, the women and, <laughs> and the boats. You quit and your the job
0: because you can now go pro, right? It's like, it's like the amateur right. bodybuilders get the pro card right that'd be that'd be
1: excellent but uh no none of that but um like i think the biggest part of consistency is just building your core game knowledge of everything in the game so you learn how the core mechanics of the game work and then you learn how you can kind of look at the armies as secondary mechanics almost so you learn how those work and then you learn how all those fit together and then if you have really strong core knowledge you can play anything is the way i look at it so yeah, I'm always looking to like polish odds and ends that get rusty over time because, like, I found that I can't really hold more than maybe six or seven armies in my head like to like a lot of accuracy. And then you've kind of like you're trying to keep that as the rotation of the really strong armies, and then keep enough knowledge of the other things where you can polish it if you need to play against it. So that's kind of how I look at if you're looking at how to be consistent. I think that that's one of the stronger parts of it.
0: Yeah, for me, and I'll get into, like, how you think about the game, but for me, like, when I'm – I said this to the Discord, you know, literally the other day, is that I have been – I'm unfit from a tournament perspective. People know I've been – I was in lockdown for four months. Tournaments are only just starting back up in Australia. We haven't had any majors just yet. And, you know, we're kind of on this cusp. But mentally I've committed to myself that I'm going to attend the LVO 2023 Um, Ideally, my goal is to go to the Warhammer Open Dallas as well, or Austin, sorry. So assuming the dates work out when they announce them, I want to sneak over this year ideally. Um, But come GHB 2022, I'm going to get myself tournament fit because it does take time. If I want to do well at a tournament, I just don't rock up and, and, um, and just roll dice and win. There's a lot of practice that goes in, as you said, deliberate practice in your own army deliberate practice to understand the meta and what's going on. And, and I think for me, like one of the big things is just getting experience and exposure so that when you get to the tournament, you you're not practicing your deployment at the tournament. You, you know, where you see dragons, you know, right. Okay. A dragon's going to do this. I need to look out for the ones per game ability, you know, should this happen, I'm going to deploy here, or I'm going to think about here. Or I need to watch out for the the, the Nitroconus, and your decisions start coming in, and you you're able to respond better. That's at least how I see match play.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then you're not spending time thinking about like just mechanics on the game. You're thinking you're spending more time on the decision itself, right? So if you already have all of those things polished you're not compromising your ability to think through the decision itself. It lets you focus more on maybe like calculating how the dice are going to play out or what the decision is or paying attention to what your opponent's trying to do, like more on those things, instead of just spending time thinking about gameplay mechanics, which you can learn beforehand. So,
0: yeah. And and that's probably one big key that I've shared with people is like, learn your army first. You know, a lot of people will come to me like, oh, I'm going to my tournament in a few months' time. You know, how do I handle sons? How do I handle this? How do I handle that? I said, how well do you know your army first? Actually, learn your army first. Understand the the, the types of movement, what happens when you go first, when you go second, what's the average damage output that you can expect against certain kind of hordes and high armor save and, you know, ignore rend and, you know, get an understanding of that first, and then you've got a better – uh, a better response because at the end of the day you play traditionally five games at a gt you can worry about zinch and and um what's it called um legion legion of the first prince and you can worry about what corn's going to do and you can worry about every single army but you may not get mashed up with them
1: yeah for sure i could you almost draw like similarities to chess if you if you would um where if you're trying to learn what a knight does on the table as you get to the table, like you're just not going to be able to play competitively with someone who's like at the upper end of like competitive play for the game. Like there's so much more than the knight moves in an L like, and there's the knight can threaten X space with these, with this movement and has control of this part of the board when you get it there because of these reasons. And there's so much more happening around just the core mechanics of what the piece does. So, you really need to know what those core mechanics are before you get to the table, in my opinion. So,
0: 100%. And to John's point that I will we'll get to a little bit later, you know, practicing deployment is something that is incredibly important. There's been times where I have had a night at the games club, and all we've done is practice deployment and turn one. Like, you literally just practice and see what happens. You play out turn one, you re-rack, you try something else, you re-rack because often games are won and lost purely on the way you deploy. And, you know, once you deploy poorly, it can be very difficult to come back if you've made a really wrong decision. So, um, you know, tabletop simulator is great for that too if you don't have that games club and you can literally just play with yourself, like deploy, make some base movements, see what happens. But I 100% agree. I, I don't know how you feel. and um, what you do but for me uh, i highly recommend people practicing deliberate deployment
1: yeah i big agree but um yeah and john's a um a friend of mine actually he just went to columbus Brewhouse and went four and one with his deepkin and he's a wizard on deepkin and i've played him on tts a couple times before and that's one of the things he's really keen on is his deployment so agree with him for sure and the sentiments that you echoed as well
0: Yeah, because again, like, you know, for me, for me, the tournament is just the payoff of practice. So I want to get into like how you get tournament fit, you know, I think about this as like, uh, you know, preparing for a, I don't know, a major run or like a fitness competition or, you know, a sporting event, you got to practice. So Take me back a little bit. What got you into competitive Warhammer? Like, what is was the motivation to be, you know, have the biggest grapefruits in Age of Sigmar and, you know, <laughs> beyond the, 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 the content creator circuit? Or, like, what was your, what was your beginnings?
1: No, no, none of that. Um, I've always had stuff in my life to kind of, like, to hold me over competitively. Like, it, it, it was sports in high school. And then, like, towards the end of high school, I played Halo 3 a lot like a lot, like an unhealthy amount. (laughs) And then uh, I transitioned from that to League of Legends. Same thing. Anything I ever do, like competition-wise, I always, it's like I'm in or I'm out. Like that's my two speeds. Like I don't have a a medium healthy speed. So I usually like just get halfway decent at things because I'm obsessive. And then um, I was kind of looking for something after I spent a little bit of time in the Marines over here. In the american military and then um got out of that after four years was kind of looking for something to do and uh just stumbled my way into a games workshop down the road and i was like because i played it when i was little and i remember it being pretty fun but it was probably like 11. i was probably like 11 or 12 and and when i started playing again i was like 24 25. so there's a sizable gap of not playing and then i picked up 40k because it's the popular game um got a little bit into that, figured out what tournaments was, then started going to those. Um, got pretty good at those. But then I found when I got to top tables in 40K, there, at least at the time, there was kind of a culture of if you didn't have like encyclopedic knowledge of your opponent's army, like there was like it was almost fair play to like fudge the rules. So I wasn't really like a big fan of that atmosphere. I didn't like it. So it kind of turned me off of the game. um and I was looking for something else, almost played 30K. And then uh, just tried out an Age of Sigmar tournament instead. So, and then as soon as I played it, I was hooked, had a ton of fun. The people around locally where I play are some of the best people you can meet. And uh, yeah, it's kind of just been full steam ahead since then. It was a little bit of low when everybody locked down in 2020. But as soon as tournaments came back around, I was all the way in. I was I was not out. I was in. I was on that speed, so.
0: But, uh, I think I think when, on Harambe's Heroes, you'd mentioned that um, there's a couple of things you're good in life, and Age of Sigmar was definitely one of those. <laughs> um, but for me, like when I got into tournaments, I I have a long history of fantasy battles. I played Warhammer since like third edition, may, third, fourth edition, but I'd never actually been to a tournament until Age of Sigmar. It just never kind of hit my radar for whatever reason it might have been, not from a lack of concern. It was just never a goal. And, you know, my friends kind of like convinced me, like, you know, get into it, get into it, get into it. And it was a single greatest thing that I've done in my Warhammer career, purely because um, I've met so many people. I've made so many friends. The first tournament you go to is a bit worrying. You don't know a lot of people. You don't know the atmosphere. And then you come back to the next one and you see familiar faces. Then you go to the next one and then these people become friends. Then you go to the next one, they become traveling buddies. You go hang out at dinner. You go have some beers afterwards. You're talking at lunchtime about lists and what our games were like and how do we prepare. And, you know, we start vying for, for the tops of the, the podiums and things like that. And it's, I think as you get older, at least, you know, I, at least for myself, I don't have nearly as many, not nearly as many friends. That's not what I wanted to say. Um, I, you don't actively go out and pick up new friends, you know, just in your general life. But I found so many people I've met have gone on to become friends from the competitive Warhammer scene, and that's not me being a YouTuber. That's reflective of probably a lot of people who go to tournaments because we all have one thing in common, and that's Warhammer. We all have it in common, so we can talk about it when we get off. We get, get go away from the tournament. We chat. We join groups. We go to events. We all hang out with each other. There's banter. I, I, I love the scene. It's not just uh, crush your opponent. Drink their tears. Um, there's a you know, and I think that's probably one thing I want to share with people who are listening. It's not that that's not the culture that you're you're joining when you step into the tournament ring.
1: Yeah, for sure not. And then I, anyone that I've ever seen that shows a willingness to learn, like everyone's here to help you. There's not like an animosity for people that are trying to get better either, which I've found in other like competitive games. There's almost like an animosity towards like people know. it takes to get to the next level and they're very like secretive and protective of that information and trying to keep people away because there's some kind of like jealous part of it which is very strange to me because the the best games i've ever played age of sigmar are the ones where your decisions and your dice matter so like it, it takes a lot to keep a game to age of sigmar close enough to make the dice matter in the game a lot of the time because especially you see like a skill gap between two players you'll see one player start to pull away with their decisions and then the dice just don't matter. Like we roll them, but that the resolution to those dice is either like the skew would have to be so much to turn it the other way, or it just doesn't matter at all. Um, and then some of the best age of Sigmar that you can play is when you're making adaptive decisions based on the information you're getting from the dice, because it, it's almost like, like your motions are kind of like on a roller coaster. You're very up and down. There's a lot of, it's um, a word for it. Um I can't think of the word, but it's um it's almost like a roller coaster ride is how I describe it. I, I really enjoy those games.
0: Yeah, like you'll you'll see, you know, top tournament players, people who do really well, you know, they will not say to you, I won or lost a game off a priority role. You know, a very common, very common excuse that you hear from people like, Oh, if only I'd won the priority role, I would have won the game. But a really good player will actually not get into that position in the first place because they know that they can't rely purely on a 50-50 roll so they need to be making good decisions along the way and this is all just micro decisions it's about probability of like what you what you can expect from your dice and adapting when things go well and things go don't, don't go well it's about purely and it's probably why i really enjoy the counter style i'm very much like a counter attack player i don't like going first i like responding to my opponent and Anticipating and manipulating over time; um, otherwise, I just like, run forward like as an iron jaws player and just like execute a plan, which <laughs> is not my style.
1: Right, you're only, you're just trying to leverage your pieces against your opponent's pieces and like present them with tough decisions a lot of the time, because like the more you can force tough decisions, the likely the more likely it is that your opponent's going to make a mistake. So counter style, counter punch style is very effective for that, I think.
0: And to Gareth's point, yes, technically a priority role is in 50-50 when you consider the person who went first gets yeah. to next priority. It's like 57.6%, I
1: think. Done don't, the math. don't
0: don't make numbers on me on a Friday. <laughs> like, come on, come on. The spirit of is of, of like I can't rely on a dice roll. Like that's that's the concept yep. here. But let's talk about actually like preparing because I'm gonna get tournament fit. I'm gonna I want to do really well at an upcoming tournament. Um, it could be a major event like an LVO or a, um, an Adepticon or some big 200 player event, or it could just be my local 50 player event or something that's a, a lot smaller to me, like whatever it might be. Hmm. Like, how do you prepare for a tournament? Like, take me, take me back to um, whether it was LVO or maybe one of the bigger events. Obviously, like, you know, you've come off LVO and you're going into Lone Star, so there's not a big gap there. But how do you prepare for a tournament? Like, what are the things that you do? How do you practice? Like, let's let's break this down a little bit.
1: Okay, sure. Um, I found that, like, I've traveled a lot to tournaments over the past, like, six months or so. So I don't need to play a lot of games to stay, like, fit for as far as mechanics over the table. Um, what I do do a lot of the t- time is I'm always looking at, like, what the meta is, like, what the popular things are, what people are kind of gravitating towards because you need tools to deal with popular armies because like you have if you play against those armies which are more likely to you have to have the tools to deal with them or you're just not going to be able to be successful in those games like when giants were at the top of the heap and they're still very good now um but when everybody was playing them and they were considered the best army in the game you had to have the ability to kill a giant in a turn or you just weren't going to be able to beat giants on a lot of the missions that you need to beat them on so that is very open-ended you can fit a lot of different armies into the slot of i need to kill a giant in turn but it needs to have that ability and like that's just one example of like taking an approach to what you think the meta is going to be and kind of applying it to your list building so like for lvo it was dragons like like, dragons probably gonna be out in force and then stormcast in general like with thunderbolt volley and translocate like all those tools are going to be something that you had to be aware of Sorry, <clears throat> when you're looking at your list building conceptually. Um, so like for LVO specifically, um, Living City really fit that bill because you, you can hide most of your power off the board. So no one can translocate you and Thunderbolt you. which also applies for giants or dragons double moving and getting into deployment zone and killing you. And then like coincidentally, when they expose their damage, you can come off any board edge and project your power into what you need to. So that was kind of the choice of sub-faction or faction behind LVO. And then like almost every, like, I don't always want to take like the most competitive thing I can, I can find in the game. But like when I took Beast of Chaos to New Orleans, it was a very similar approach to list building. I wanted tools to deal with what I thought was very good at the time. So no matter what your faction is, um, I think you always like, I don't consider faction choice, like skill expression because a lot of people like to play armies that they just like to play. Right. But I do consider the decisions within your faction list building wise to be skill expression. So no matter what you play, you need to be aware of what is in the meta and like what tools you need to deal with what's in the meta,
0: in my opinion. And that's exactly why this discussion is not about living city. And I don't want to really, I don't really want to focus specifically on the faction because like it was a moment in time, right? In three months right. time from now, you know, dragons might go up, formulators might go up, dragons might not be battle line. Like what the what the list was at the time is irrelevant. For me, it's the path and it's the things that you did along the way. And I want to go back to what you said about the meta because people throw around this term meta, right? And for me, I just share with people like when they get to me like what the hell is the meta? You know, I just explained that it's the local environment. It's the when you go to a local game store, there is a meta there. It's the people who congregate, and you can play on a Thursday night. Then you might go into something like more of a state-based meta. You know what's happening. You know at, a, at your you know your local major tournaments, and then you've got some global and international, or so global and national type metas, right? You know, Australia is a little bit different to the England. England's a little bit different to America. And then at a global level, there is a meta where there's like a top five or a top six or a top four armies that are going to consistently do well, no matter which country you're in. So, you know, there's been plenty of people that I've, I've talked to. They're like, well, there's no one in my community who plays Lumineth. You know, everyone plays Skaven and they play a lot of goblins and it's a horde meta. But then when you t- chunk it up a little bit, the meta can kind of completely shift. So the question I want to ask you, Gav, is how do you go about understanding the meta? Because you've obviously picked up the meta well in LVO. I would have expected way more Lumineth, and I was probably a, a bit surprised by how many Stormcast. I knew they'd be popular. I didn't think there'd be that many Stormcast. So what do you do to kind of learn the meta?
1: Um, so specifically the, the Honest Wargamer, like pretty popular channel and resource for Sigmar. Um, he does a lot of stat breakdowns has a document that you can open up, play around with, and like analyze a lot of statistical data. Not all of it's great, but there's definitely a lot of value packed in his document. And then, well, a lot of people will go and like when people think something's really strongly, very vocal. So <laughs> I, I try to extract value from chatter on social media. It's not always there but like at the very least you can look at what people think is strong. Like even if it's not the strongest thing, like there's a lot of things that I don't think are the strongest thing. Like when giants were the, considered the strongest thing, I didn't think they were that strong of an army because it was a very simple solution to their tools, but everyone else thought it was really strong. So like if the majority of people think it's really strong and decide to take the army, you have to have the tools to deal with it. Right. So and, and in that way, it's kind of an expression of power, within the giant book that they are strong enough to force you to bring the tools that are necessary to beat that army. Um, And then just in general, that's kind of what I look for. I look for like, what is the chatter around other armies? And then like kind of what are, what, what is the tournament scene? Like what is the, the percentage of armies being taken in other tournaments leading up to a tournament? I'm trying to like predict in a way, what's going to be at the tournament that I'm going to. Right. So
0: not 100% so how? Proof, no, no, no. And, and and like, you know, you can never predict what the meta is going to be. You can anticipate and kind of see I I always try to look at it as themes as opposed to obviously going to have a couple of like top 5 armies that are always going to do well. You'll that that f- top 5 will kind of rotate over time, but there'll always be a top 5 that are doing really well. But I try to look at things like what's the themes, you know? Is it lots of bodies and hordes or is it elite? Is it going to be shooting, combat, a bit of both? Is it things coming off on the from reserve? Is there a lot of summoning? Is there a lot of like what are the themes? Because one of the challenges that you can find, and I want to talk to you about list, uh, list design in a minute, is that you can try to build a list that goes right well um, Lumineth is doing really well, or Suns is doing really well in meta. So I'm going to build a list that is specific to Suns. But then during the tournament, you might face up against something completely different, uh, uh, Gloom Spike kits. You might get face up against um, a completely different type of army that you haven't anticipated, prepared, or got an idea from. So I'm trying to more look at themes. And I think you had mentioned in the podcast, the Harambe's Heroes, uh there was a really good idea you talked about was that you you'd seen things where people were just building mortal wound output in their lists Mm. but you wanted to have a combination of high quality no rend you wanted to have some rend and you wanted to have some mortal wounds so no matter what you were up against you had some tools to handle them
1: yeah for sure And, and anytime i build a list in general i'm always trying to like have a diverse toolkit like if you just have one tool Like you're going to be in situations where that tool doesn't work. So you you need to have a good toolkit and then you need to have the knowledge to apply your tools correctly too. So I think that you, you need to understand what you're getting when you're building a list and then how that list mixes in with other armies and how it interacts with other armies. And then if you want to take the next step you can kind of skew those tools based on what you think the meta is going to be but those tools need to also just be generally strong in addition to being good in the meta but it usually lines up like if you have good if you have tools that are really good into the armies that are the like the top five armies in the meta they're probably going to be good into the rest of the meta as well not always it's not 100 percent foolproof, but you need to have options you need to give yourself options in your list building
0: yeah, yeah. And look, you know, the Honest Wargamer has a great set of data. Um, you also have people like AOS Shorts who will do the top 10 um, lists or the top 10 rankings of a, a lot of major events throughout the year. So follow AOS Shorts as well. Um, if you are a subscriber to Best Coast Pairings, I think it's a really good investment for a couple of dollars. Actually, it's a bit more than that. But, you know, you can kind of see all the lists, you can see what's going on in the all the tournaments and even as you mentioned, the chatter, whether it is in Facebook or Discord or Twitter, see what people are talking about. You, you can go into any faction group right now. You know, if I go into the Nighthaunt group right now, I can see what people are talking about. How do I beat um, this particular army or what does the Beast of Chaos additional rend from White Dwarf mean to, against us? How are we going to handle that? And you'll often see a lot of that chatter happening even at a faction level. So whether it is a games club or happening just broadly on socials um if you keep your eyes eyes out you'll 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 see kind of what's trending
1: yeah i agree that piece of chaos stuff's gonna be good that's my opinion so you heard it here first one coach talking about it and i uh agree with that sentiment i think that um games workshop randomly reduced two of the strongest units in that book by uh, about eighteen percent cost-wise with dragon ogres and um, the minotaurs, and then yeah, gave yeah, the, the Bul- whole the Bul- Ar- Bul-Gor. yeah gores. and then they're just like here, have a rend, like the whole army can have a rend, and then you can rally on a four plus six to the Hearthstone, like just to try and get people to play the army. So it's, um, well, it's pretty good, though.
0: Matt and Ewan went four and one at LVO with primarily bulgors and um, and things like that. So you know, imagine having like rend three, rend four. But then I guess the, the meta kind of adapts to go, well, let's say, for example, and this is kind of how the meta adapts, folks, is that something becomes really popular and then you say, well, how do I respond? And let's say, for example, craziness happens and the top boards are flooded by Beasts of Chaos. You know, <laughs> what's the natural enemy to Beasts of Chaos? Well, it's Nighthaunt because Nighthaunt gives zero Fs about rent. Right. So... So what happens is, like, then all of a sudden the nighthawk kind of raised the podium. So what do I need to handle Nighthawk, Maybe it's hero sniping. So the circle kind of goes around. And for me, when I think about the meta, I don't think about what, but I think about why. Why is it that stormcast are doing really well at the moment? Why is it that Luminous doing really well? Why is it the Suns? And instead of trying to focus on a particular faction, it's trying to focus on a trend. Um, and then either trying to lean into the trend or find the counter to the trend. That's how I look at the game.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It's very trend driven. Like popular doesn't always mean strong. Like I think the people can play those two things a lot of the time. Something might be popular because it is strong, but that because it is the most popular thing does not mean it is the strongest thing in my opinion. So
0: yeah, so definitely keep an eye out. Even Goonhammer as well will do reports and things like. There's a lot of creators out there. You can even look at like on YouTube, just what are the battle reports that people are producing, and you can see some trends happening as well. Even just from you know what is season of war playing, um, you know what is rerolling ones doing, you know all the different like Bulldog Hammer and that, like all the different competitive focused battle report channels. Who are they focusing on? And not only does that teach you what's going on in the meta. But also you can kind of get a a taste uh, of how jordan is thinking about his faction how ridge is thinking about his faction because you're seeing it live on the table and you you can learn from them even not being actually against seraphon
1: yeah you see what tools they want and how they apply their tools so you see two of the most important things that you can see to get better i think
0: yeah, and what's great as well as creators, well, you know, you could say to them, you know, why would you take crossbows as opposed to handguns? And, you know, Gavin would tell me about crossbows, um, <laughs> those night haunts. Yeah, by the way, those night haunt, like it's an impending doom coming out. Like I think they'll, depending on how the balance goes with the new book, it could be, could be interesting considering that for the last two years they've been flooding the board, flooding the meta with cheap night haunt from the magazine. I don't think it hit America yet, but there's a lot of cheap night haunt out there at the moment. So keep an eye out for those spooky ghosts. Yeah,
1: those um, if the numbers are out of whack on that war scroll, they're going to be really strong because you can pop up anywhere within nine inches and project your shooting power immediately. So that's what made crossbows good in Living City. So we'll see what the numbers are. They're either going to be like pointed out of the game, or they're going to be too good. I think
0: that's what I see happening. I don't think Games Workshop will get it right. So <laughs> no, they never do. There's always a cycle where there's like something that's really strong um and then it gets enough attention that they get the points adjustment or the war scroll adjustment sometimes it's hot in the meta for like 12 to 18 months that um you normally find something will be at its peak for a while you jump onto the trend before it gets and then the stock drops so um one of the challenges if you want to chase the, the meta if you out and go out and buy 50 sentinels know that eventually sentinels will be hot garbage and you'll be sitting there with you know this many or as nogal players are now finding finding they have flooded the board with lots and lots of black kings and now they're stuck with 45 black kings and only really need like maximum of 20.
1: yeah for sure that i would uh, suggest diversifying your toolkit and not buying a whole army of anything 11 dragons comes to mind It just don't do it Yep you know maybe yeah. just sprinkle in things that would that would be my recommendation
0: <laughs> speaking of sprinkling um how do you construct your list like do you do you have a particular idea in mind like because obviously you've built a gloom spike gets force for for lone star you've done beasts of chaos in the past you've also done cities of sigma in the past outside of lvo when we first spoke um like how do you build lists? Do you go like hero heavy? Do you go lots of troops? Do you think about shooting versus combat? Like what are some of the decisions that you think about in, from a list tech point of view?
1: Um, usually I start when I look at a book and I buy every book because I'm obsessive and completely healthy as a human being. But um I, I go through a book and like, you'll find that there's a few strong core concepts in the book and that that's, might be related to artifacts. might be related to your spell lore or maybe your war scrolls or et cetera, command traits, anything. Right. And so you have these, these really strong core concepts and you're trying to make those core concepts line up with other core concepts that synergize well together. And then once you have like a really strong foundation list building wise, like you're looking for like, like maybe like 50% to 75% of your list to be set. With these core concepts you can start to put in peripheral tech that complements those core pieces too right so if you have something like big slow tough does a lot of damage you want something that can act as a vanguard to grab objectives and maybe screen your big strong tough thing or threaten your opponent's backline. like just very generally speaking um, an example that i could use would be like the beast of chaos list that i had i was looking on how to use bray Hurd. Because they have a lot of um, a lot of complimentary tech for bray herd specifically, lots of movement bonuses, run and charge bonuses, a lot of their spell lore helps out your bray herd to artifacts, etc. Um, and then so I found that Zangors have the keyword. So if they get all those bonuses that everyone, you know, loves talking about for gores and ungores about how uncompetitive they are. Well, that keyword is on Zangors too, so you can take a good version of those models, and then those models really complement wizard selection, which also winds up, to, winds up being one of the stronger points in the Beast of Chaos book. Like their spell lore is very strong. So, and you have a lot of cheap wizards to use as spell lore. And then those wizards interact with the banners on the Zangors for your mortal wound projection from range because their banners count up the number of friendly wizards that you have. And then you pick an enemy unit, you roll a dice based on how many wizards are close to your units. And you do X amount of mortal wounds to the enemy. So that's kind of an example of synergy that I could use. But you didn't
0: start at that point. Like, I, I think I want to call out here that you didn't look at the book and make that immediate connection. You looked at a common theme, you looked at an idea, and then you started looking at war scrolls, artifacts, spells, additional abilities that would complement the theme. And sometimes you'll look at a theme and it won't work. You know, the faction's just not good enough. Like, you know, there's been plenty of times where I look at some co- really cool combination but then I realize that my spell casters aren't that strong. And then when I hit the wall of Lumineth, Zeench, Seraphon, whatever it might be, I can't rely on those spells consistently. So I'll ditch the concept. So yeah. You, yeah. You, you start exploring your book over time and you start hunting down what else works. Yeah. The most
1: tragic trap I've ever found is the, uh, the Reapers of Vengeance Scarbrand trap. It's so tragic. You're like, oh, I can have plus three attacks and I can fight twice. And then you realize that Scarbrand is going to get Thunderbolt volley. Don't turn one. You're just like, oh, OK, well, I guess it doesn't work, but um, just keep it in your back pocket. Maybe the meta will evolve into a point where it becomes melee focused and that will work. Right. It's like just because a concept doesn't work at the time doesn't mean it's has no value like you just and even the exercise itself I find has a lot of value of being able, like the more you look and try and find like the themes and like currents of power running through a book, like the better you get at finding them. Right. So like, even if you find things that don't work, like it's still like almost as important of an exercise as deployment, like you'd said before. So.
0: Yeah. And you know, like you'll see that people will persist over time. I remember when I have played some really off metal lists and, people, I'll get to the table and people will go, what does your army do? Because they haven't seen this faction for a while. Like it's probably been a long time since people have played up against like four bloodthirsters. And like, what does that inch you know, pile in do? And, you know, uh, if you don't have like people, people have heard, creators and their friends talk about those top five top six we know to look out for marathi in the bow snakes we know they're going to double shoot we know this what you know chip wounds we know what gottrek does now you know, we kind of all know the paths but when you start going up against the bloodthirsters, you know with the the flesh hounds, and you've got you know the, the the totem man and all that all of a sudden it, it makes decisions a lot harder and you kind of make your opponent think about the way you respond and if you've practiced really well you can really get the best out of it and we've already seen through third edition how many people have podium top five top ten top three with off meta lists so it doesn't you don't have to play the top five to win um we've seen so many people win with i think all the factions i think there's very few factions that haven't at least um had a podium
1: yeah it kind of goes back to like if you can make your opponent spend time thinking about like gameplay mechanics you Force them to spend more of their energy thinking about something that isn't good decision making, or, uh, or analyzing your decisions. Right? They're thinking about your concept, like they're thinking about your mechanics instead of like the move that you're trying to make. Or they don't understand the move that you're trying to make because they don't understand the mechanics of your army, and then they make the wrong move. Like if they move within three of that bloodthirster, like well, I'm not charging it. I'm not getting into combat. I'm just going to screen you. And then you're like, well, I have a six inch pylon, so like you can put them there,
0: but. I'm going to pile into you and get priority on my damage anyways right so do you think um good question do you think that we're going to see a meta shift into the hordes i think i think we're on the cusp that it could come back soon i think coherency and some other rules are holding it back a little but i think you know we're starting to see people realizing at minimum they need more bodies they need chaff they need some um they need some horde but maybe not as crazy as like 200 100 goblins on the table do you yeah. have any thoughts on horde That's do that's my man uh,
1: levon too in the chat too um and congratulations again on LVO and everything that came with it but um yeah and I don't necessarily horde means large model counts either I think we're probably trending towards like a wound density meta um and how you derive that wound density could be with models that have lots of wounds such as piece of chaos like soul black like grave lords which is a horde like because they have lots of they have lots of wounds that have a six up um, ward and then also have the ability to come back at half strength and also regenerate so there's a lot of innate toughness in that faction but factions that derive their derived toughness from wound density and the ability to like project toughness because right now there's a, like a lot of perceived damage in the meta. so if the damage gets to a certain point where like the answer is just to like roll for turn priority and hope that I get a double turn. Well, then someone's going to look for a better answer to that question. than I hope I get a double turn. So you're going to start to look for something that's more reliable than that. And I think that that might wind up being like lots of wound density or toughness density based on like ward stacking with fire slayers or maybe deep in with forgotten nightmares or Nurgle, like you said, um, lots of ways to get toughness in the game that people aren't really playing because they want to play damage because damage is sexy like taking your opponent's models off the board feels a lot better than taking the board and leveraging toughness right but players are going to play what's competitive so I could definitely see it trending towards that
0: I dig it uh and Levan will definitely get into this question like what's the best advice for this wannabe champions um we'll definitely get to that one we'll get to that one a bit later let's let's unpack the Christmas present first before we get into like the turkey roast that um yeah like absolutely I think it's thinking about and and playing around and I guess one thing I noticed and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is I noticed that players when they try a concept they'll quickly if it doesn't work they'll throw it away they'll throw the concept away and they'll chop and change their list with every loss and In some cases, that is the correct answer. In some cases, I find persisting with it because maybe you had the right idea, just the wrong execution, or maybe you just made the wrong decision at the time, or maybe you just, you know, things didn't go your way. And to throw away an idea, I think, can be premature. So I guess my question to you is, at what point do you know an idea isn't working? Or how often would you chop and change your list as you explore this tournament list
1: um that's a good question um I have a lot of people in my circle that are also like very knowledgeable about the game all the people from all these heroes I'm also involved with um Team America right now they're all excellent players so having those other perspectives to bounce your ideas off of maybe gives you like shine some light on things that you don't see maybe it's in your blind spot and they you know just offer their perspective and you find that and that maybe causes some readjustment of your list building. But also, like, the most telling thing that you're going to find um, on whether or not something should be in the list is if you're teching to very specifically do things, like, if you put a, a, a unit in your army to kill a giant, don't roll dice, do the math. Like, and if the math says you're not going to kill a giant, then you need to have... Peripheral damage, or you need to pivot off of that piece if it's not going to work, like that. And I think a lot of people like when you practice a lot, or you're just taking your information from rolling dice. Like dice can lie to you, so believe it or not. Um, and you you should really also understand the math deeply if you want to be very competitive, and then also have a lot of redundancy built into your math, so you have very stable um, you have very stable math in your army because you when you're on those top tables, you don't want to be gambling. Like if you can help it, you want to be able to make very informed decisions and be confident that those are decisions are going to play out how they, how they're going to play out, especially in the way that you want
0: them to. Right. So let's unpack two things there. First off, how do you understand the, the, the damage potential, for example, of, you know, can I pull down a mega Gargant? without actually being on the table like what is it that you particularly do to understand that
1: um so when you take whatever however you're doing that damage right you just take the the max amount of damage that that unit's going to produce and that's your damage potential right so fulminators damage potential is 84 because you have 20 attacks that do three damage each 60 damage then you have 12 more damage that do or 12 more attacks that do two damage each 24 damage 60 plus 24 is 84. And then you analyze how many breakpoints are in that damage track, right? So you have to roll to hit, you have to roll a wound, and then you have to hope that your opponent fails to save, right? So the failing part, the, the failing to save part is pretty good on Fulminators because it's minus two rend. And that's very functional in the meta right now because there's lots of things that are stuck on a four plus save. So even if they use plus one, still five plus, still very functional at that point. And then in my list, I had built them into Hunters of the Heartland, so I could always all-out attack, so I can always be on a 2-plus to hit, um, as long as it didn't drive any, into any debuffs. And then I built my list to be at 1960, so I was really skewing for the triumph, too. So that first initial point of damage, that's the most important part of damage, I can always have plus one to wound. And as long as it didn't drive into debuffs, I have 2-plus, two 2-plus two and then with minus two rend, and it's very reliable into most of the things I want to take down. It's just one example, but I try to look at that no matter what I'm building conceptually.
0: So, And, and the cool thing as well is you don't have to be the rain end like Gavin and his these numbers like that. <laughs> you know, there are cool online calculators. That's what I thought you were going to tell me as opposed to dropping a maths degree on us. Um, there is plenty of online tools that will show you the statistical breakdown to say, right, well... I enter the, the hit characteristic, the wound characteristic, the rend characteristic, you know, what I'm up against. I can see the damage output and you can spend, you know, an afternoon or a couple of hours and go, right, well, this is my base profile. What happens if I give it plus one to hit or I can give it plus one attack? You know, you know, is it worth the spending the command point? And you can see the probability charts when you start going from like a three up to a two up, you know, often the yield isn't really as high as going from a four to a three. So where you use your resources, for example, you can play around with it and understand that goes, right, well, you know, in this turn when I get two CP, or let's say, for example, I'm given the top of the turn and I have one less CP or I lose my general or I don't get the um, the heroic leadership to get my, my, my extra CP, I've got a better decision tree to go, right, well, I know that, you know, giving them plus one to hit in shooting is nice to have, but I know that my priority commands are these two. Or these three um, and then anything else extra is is nice to have
1: yeah and then you also start to see the other side of the coin too and like how you would derive toughness so playing with those application points so if you can debuff your opponent's hit or, you de- or your opponent's wound or have a high enough save to stop damage at that point too or award save you start to cut into that number too so you start to understand how much toughness you need to build into your unit for it to be worth it, in my opinion.
0: So one other trap that you know Gareth's calling out, and you know, I, I see it happens a lot as well, is um, is people look at things like probability on maximum potential. So if I have my 30 troops with my two buffs on there and they do all these things that you know my maximum output is X. But you know, especially like when it comes to hordes and things like you know you know large units. What's the likelihood that all of those models are going to be in combat um, or, you know, if they're if they on like a 32 more base like the old Reavers had, for example, only had one inch, then really you're only working statistically not on the full potential of the unit but rather maybe half of it or three-quarters of it. So I often find when people are using probability and looking at those calculators, they over-expect what a unit can do because they're not thinking about the practicality on the table. I don't know if you found that as well, but I just find that people are like, oh, this, we, you know, 30 Witch Elves buffed up, you know, double knives mm-hmm. on the charge can do, you know, 90 attacks. Okay, well, will you get those 30 Witch Elves into combat when we're in, you know, a meta right now where people are doing units of like five? Probably yeah. not.
1: Or the um, a Sloppity Biopiper stops your pylon and then stops a bunch of your damage getting in the range. But um, yeah, I find that. And then, so if you're going to bet on damage, you need to if you can try to skew for like a 15 to 20% deviation in the it going poorly. So if you can buffer your damage, even before you get to that phase and just make it even more, because if you can get the number low enough, like you can make it to where it's almost like a yes or no decision because of the way probability works. Right. But if it's close, like you need to understand it's a 50, 50 roll if it's very close and you need to understand the implications that it has for your army and the impact that it's going to have down the game and not just bet on a 50 50 roll i'm going to get the 50 50 roll and it's going to go great they're going to win turn priority and then i win the game like every one of those being a 50 50 roll it gets half again as likely every time you do one of those so likelihood not great
0: <laughs> yeah yeah ongoing the the cycle ongoing becomes really tough that yep. um, you don't need a maths degree to play Warhammer, folks. Nope. But I think it's—I think what you're hearing here is that when you have deliberate practice in preparation for a tournament, you have a better understanding of what my army can do. You know what's the likelihood of my unit coming in from reserve and getting a charge immediately? And if that's rely—if I need that for my strategy to kick off, well, then where is it in my book or within endless spells that allows me to get a boost or increase the chances of success? To hit that charge from the side of the board? You know What's the likelihood that I could survive a double turn against a particular unit? Or what would it take in order for me to survive it? So if I Jaws, for example, are gonna churn one charge you with two more crushes, I can't control my opponent, but what is it that I can do to increase the likelihood of my, my unit survival? Whether it's going to be some type of ward buff, whether it's gonna be some type of uh, save increase, whether it's some type of i don't know counter charge ability is there you know layers of screens that i can protect my grave guard with uh, and have some zombies or some skeletons instead so then the grave guard come in and punch you harder than i you know you punch me you know i think it's the questions you ask yourself to understand what is they doing why are they doing it and then how can i respond yeah
1: you're trying to find your path to victory somewhere in there. So don't always, it's not always being aggressive. It's not always being conservative. It's trying to find the right decision based on the information that's in front of you. So.
0: It's um it's a, it's a jigsaw puzzle and always changing jigsaw. And I think that's the challenge, right? It's purely about just trying to understand how to, how to, I guess, solve the problem. And I think that is a good mindset to have. And, you know, when you lose, don't look at it like I lost it's, I've learned something about solving this problem, so next time I have a better solution, or at least I've thought about it a little bit differently.
1: Yep, agreed.
0: How often do you practice?
1: Um, like, actually, over the board, playing um, not as much as I want to, but I play a lot, so it almost acts kind of like practice. Um, usually, like, before a tournament, I switch armies a lot, and um, I do a lot of thinking about it conceptually and i usually i'm trying to get at least like at least a gt's worth of practice in before i go to a gt a lot of the time i found is like the sweet spot for, for me but i'm pretty good at picking the army up pretty quick it's like one of the like hidden useless talents i have um but for someone who can't pick up armies as fast as that like you need to find what your sweet spot is like and that's different for everybody right so Whatever that winds up being, you need to have that before you get to the tournament. Because at the tournament, you're just like wherever you're at, that's going to be expression of that. And it's probably going to be like a little bit lower than what you normally play at because of all the stressors around a tournament too. So you need to understand that like to get to perform at a high level to tournament, there is prep work, right? Like you've been discussing beforehand.
0: I think the key as well is, and I've had this conversation with a few people, is when you chop and change your list too often they're models you need to buy, build and paint, right? So depending on if you're like me and you've got like a, an industrial shed full of models, <laughs> or if you're like starting out for the first time, there comes a point in time where you can't, you've just got to commit to your list, learn it as best as you can, as opposed to chopping and changing to the finest hour. Um, now, if you own the models and they're painted and that's not an issue for you, you've got a bit more flexibility, but it's about how much time you can commit and I know for myself, I will, when I'm going into tournament season, I will at least aim to have one game a week and once a month attend a store event, which might be two or three games. So, and the reason I try to go to those store events is because you get to apply feedback immediately. So when I play one game a week, if something goes wrong or I deployed wrong or did something that I should have done differently I can't apply that feedback until the next week. I can't practice and see what I can do. But when I'm at like a one-day hour uh, with three, get a three games, you know, in that store, I can do something. It didn't work. I try something different. And sometimes I'll practice things stupidly because I want to see what happens if a model dies, if a synergy doesn't go off, because I want to get that experience before I get to the GT and realize that, you know, my opponent is smart. They've sniped off something. Something didn't go my way. At least I've had like those those fallback experiences. That's how at least I like to play the game, which seems crazy, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. No,
1: I agree. And then it's um, it's very close to what you're going to experience at a GT2, like a local one-day or use play three games. That's the amount of games you're going to play at a tournament. So you get to see how that second game is going to feel, or that third game is going to feel, like just standing up, And then maybe your your mouth's dry from not from talking so much and not getting enough water and then you know drink enough water and like just having those same stressors around the game itself and having experience with that like will also help you perform a little better i found so
0: i would rather make mistakes and make failures in practice like you know i'm I'm, you know in in my my professional life, you know, I work in learning and development, and you know, work for a whole bunch of people. But one of the things that I talk about is practicing pri- in private what you want to execute in public, right? And you know, anyone who's ever gone to a training course in work, they want you to like do role playing and skills practicing, and it feels mm-hmm. stupid to do it with your colleagues, right? You, you're role playing a conversation, you feel like an idiot, but it's better to do that in that safe space than actually do it in the real in the real moment. And I, I, I apply the exact same theory when I go at my local store, I'd rather practice and do something stupid. And then at least I've tried it out. And if the situation happens again, I know what the outcome is likely to happen. So practice, practice, practice imperfection. That's how I find um, I make better decisions on the gaming table. Cause I now know the decision tree on what happens next
1: yeah you get farther down the path like you're saying like it's you get over that initial failure and then the fallout of that failure and then you get to see how to react to the fallout of the failure you just keep you have the ability to go farther down the path like you're saying yeah
0: and go hunt people down like i always hunt people down like right well for example, Lumineth Sentinels. I've mentioned Lumineth way too many times. They're not even the boogeyman. It's bloody like long strikes mm. now and dragons, and there's other boogeymen right now. But let's say, for example, I go and hunt down my local Stormcast player who's running one, maybe even two blocks of you know long strikes with forminators and dragons, and they, you know, the dragon meta is super scary right now. And like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And what happens if I face a, a dragon army? Well, go find it. Go challenge your local dragon player, go online to Tabletop Simulator and say, I want a game against dragons, I want you to bring your best game, have that experience and then go, right, if my, you know, is my list designed to handle this or what could I have done differently? Again, it's all about learning. Yep, agreed. Is there, is there anything that you bring to a tournament that is, like, your lucky charm or anything that maybe you have in your backpack that um, people wouldn't traditionally bring, like any secret sauce?
1: Uh, no, no real lucky charms, I suppose. Um, we've got, like, gear. We've got shirts and vests and stuff, and I'm always there. Like, when, I, when I'm there with somebody from my club or a bunch of us from our club, like, in a way that, that like, settles – my mind even more like so that's definitely like a lucky charm just being around people i know and as i've traveled to more of these tournaments i've found more people and made friends with a lot more people so like i find that like if you have somebody to hang out with in between rounds that kind of like reroutes some of that awkwardness you get over that there's no anxiety or there's less anxiety than there would be if you're there by yourself right so i think if i have a lucky charm it's like the people that i hang out with at tournaments are my lucky charm
0: so Aww. Aww. <laughs> i do want to call out this comment as well about the fact that um you know having really good really good opponents as well i wasn't i wasn't into the latter part with about the the dallas simpletons i, I didn't say that i'm just reading that's the uh,
1: that's tom he helped uh t.o lvo and he helps T- he helps scott read t.o a bunch of tournaments but um he's been keen to the um the trash talk we've had up to uh, lone star and yeah the the dallas or dallas is the local punching bag in texas so everybody else beats up on them but they've got some real lists this time so maybe they've they fixed everything right they brought really strong models so they should beat everybody so we'll see
0: well i wanted to call that more the, the top maybe the top half of his comment rather than the sass um right. gareth is always like sending me sass in discord <laughs> um but like but having good opponents and and like making friends with them, because I think you'll find um, at least in the communities that I play with, the, the most competitive people want to win. They want to play good games. They want to have good competitive games and they will practice amongst themselves. They'll have game nights. They'll have like a WhatsApp or a Discord. So mm-hmm. find yourself a good group of players and practice with them. And um, again, there's no no such thing as failure. Don't worry about getting tabled. It's about getting those advice, asking your opponent, you know, I think you, you do this as well quite well, you know, sharing feedback and providing um, or even asking for feedback from your opponent, what could have I done differently? Um, I was having a game with my mate Liam, um, we're playing Daughters of Cain versus Sons, and um, I, I asked him at the end of the game, you know, even someone that Liam and I have gone to, you know, the Masters series in Australia, I said, what could I have done differently? And, you know, he shared an idea. I didn't quite agree with him, but at least it was a different perspective for me to think about and go, well, yeah, maybe Liam is right. Oh no. In this case, I don't think he's right, but at least I've thought out the decision as opposed to doing something reactively.
1: Yeah. And then like just communications key, like you're saying, like if you, least if you tell somebody something or ask somebody something and you can tell that it's not what you have in your head, right? It's not the statement that you have in your head or the information that you want inside of your head. Like try just like just have good communication skills to maybe reword the answer or just be like, look, dude, I'm not super great at saying this, but like, just tell me what I did wrong and how to get better. And most people that's very clear and very straightforward. And most people are like happy to help anybody. I've never really had anybody or seen anybody in the community ever tell somebody like, no, I'm not helping you. Like it's a very helpful community with some of the best people that you can meet. In my experience, maybe there's people out there that. Aren't as you know, aren't as nice, I guess. But I haven't found them. So
0: no, most of them are pretty. They want you to succeed after the game, right? So like, oh, you know, maybe you should have thought about this, or I thought you brought in these units too early, or you know, why did you summon here? I think you could have done it better here, and just simply asking you, you know, is there something that I could have done better, um, and and leave it as an open question. It's amazing what people will bring to the table, and if you ask for feedback over a number of people. You'll get a much better idea and, and you'll get even new ideas to the table i hadn't thought about this or you know if you had those canary it would have helped you in this situation like, yeah actually maybe i should bring some canary into my list i don't have that deep strike ability because i've been so focused on snakes and marathi
1: yep agreed. do you think
0: do you think having a beard is more important than um, having good <laughs>
1: Well, if you can't grow one then i mean you can't have a beard it's just like i can't grow hair so like i don't have it so <laughs> if you can't have something i don't know if it can be more important than something you have control over right
0: i think one thing that chase is mentioning here and i want to get back to some of the other questions but you know like beasts of chaos right now and this is probably again going back to understanding the meta right so Beasts of Chaos have just gotten their White Dwarf this weekend or last weekend, and they're, they're in Rend Heaven. You know, you're going to get Rend 5, Rend 7. This is not going to be uncommon, right? Like Rend 7 is a very possible thing. And, and, like, you could really freak out and go, oh, my gosh, how am I going to deal with Beasts of Chaos? But how many Beasts of Chaos players do you know in your local scene? And I'm not oh, asking. I'm... It's a more of a it's a, it's more of a rhetorical question than it is like I don't need to know like a, a laundry list of all your opponents. That mm. is the threat real, and unless I, I start seeing a whole bunch of beasts of chaos people, it's something to consider. That maybe it's something I don't want to counter because I don't need to because it's the likelihood of playing that one or two beasts of chaos players at a GT is slim, but it's worth worth thinking about.
1: Yeah, and then it's like the most we've ever seen like faction participation is like critical mass is like 10 to 15%. And that's one to eight out of like one out of eight or one out of 10 games. So it's like, like you you have a good chance of not even playing against some of that stuff at a five game tournament. A lot of the time, like once you get into the upper end, like you're maybe two Oh three Oh, like the field condenses a little bit but still like even like the very hardcore like medalists you might
0: play once or twice at a GT so there was a GT once where I played three out of five opponents as Petrofix elite <laughs> literally three out of five games were PE and this is at the height of PE when it was um really really good but then there's been times where I've had a bunny run where I've completely missed all the hot meta like you know change hosts inch and just you know all the the um the pink horrors in the world like i've missed those runs like sometimes you get really lucky sometimes you don't sometimes you get those armies like really early on and then you miss them like it's this is why like getting over fixated on the meta can be a trap because you get too worried about what what could happen as opposed to really getting to focus on what am i good at how do i handle it yeah it's
1: definitely a trap like you're saying
0: and Jeremy, Jeremy um, who was my Phoenician um, chat only recently, is a good example of that. He just did pho- uh, Phoenixes, did it really well, and focused on Phoenixes and, and the trend of a lot of mortal wounds out there in the game, as opposed to probably worrying about all the different things. He didn't die, care about what things died in his list.
1: Yeah, that's why I just want to echo the same sentiment that he had in his statement of sportsmanship and then quality of game. It was probably, probably my favorite game at LVO. Like looking back at it, my game two against Oliver Dempsey was also really, really fun. So those two games are my favorite games. And um, it was like, everyone else was like, how is this list doing what it's doing? And I was like, I have an idea. Like, I don't know everything, but I, I, I see more than what y'all see because everybody was like kind of dismissing it. And then dismissing the games he was winning up into a certain point, And then it almost demanded attention, which is really awesome to see.
0: All right, so you've you've read the meta, you've been looking at like uh, AOS shorts and uh, you've been looking at the Honest Wargamer stats, you've been keeping an eye on the local trends, you've been practising your list with good opponents, you've been attending events, you've been doing the maths hammer and thinking about like, you know, statistical output and pr- probability and you understand <laughs> what it's like to, to roll a nine-inch charge and you're thinking about what your models can do and what they can't do. You've got this good basis, right? Hmm what does the night before of LVO look like or, or Lone Star Open? Like, what is, what does that night before look like for you? Um, I I usually sleep pretty good
1: because if you do all the, all the work and all the preparation, like there's nothing more you can do. Like it, it gives you like a measure of confidence. If you like know that you're very prepared and like, there's not much more that you can do. Like I found that it gives me a little bit of confidence. Usually that day's a travel day too. So I'm usually exhausted by the time that I get to wherever it is I'm staying for the night. And like, I want to go to sleep anyways. So that helps a lot. Exhaust yourself the day before. That'd be my tip. So you wake, you get, you actually get a full night's sleep and you wake up the next day, like ready to play because you're not going to learn how to play the game in a night. (laughs) So don't try, just get a good night's sleep. So you perform at the level that you are. Would be my advice,
0: yeah, I try to keep, I usually try to keep it as chilled as possible, um, knowing that you know it's a full two days, you're gonna be thinking about a lot of things, you know you're you're never off because you're talking to people and like the time of be silent is pretty slim. so I try to enjoy the silence of the day before and I know some some of my friends actually will play a practice game the night before, which I think is absolutely crazy. like the last yeah. thing I want to be doing is adding extra games the night before, unless obviously I was going to a trip where um, like, again, you know, Adepticon, LVO, CanCon, uh, a a major event where I haven't seen friends and they're coming into a a location for, I haven't seen for a while. Yeah. I want to hang out with them. I maybe have a practice game. I want to, you know, I had a great great game at Adepticon with Chuck Moore playing, you know, a a game before the GT, but outside of that, yeah, I want to, I want to chill out. I want to have a good sleep. I want to have a good meal something low-key the calm before the storm really yeah so grab a beer with your buddies that'd be my advice because yeah i
1: don't know how other people's joints are but mine are screaming by the time i get to that fourth or fifth game at lvo like my hands were cramping on that seventh and eighth game (laughs) which was funny i had never had my hands cramp from playing warhammer i felt very
0: fragile and old but um, maybe it's my Maybe it's my age, but it's always the back. I'm like, oh man, like I'm yeah. especially if you've got like those low tables and you're bending over constantly and like, oh man, just like <laughs> need a good gym session. I need to like do my back.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Try to sit as much as you can at tournaments too. That's a pro tip. Like always, whenever like actively think about sitting down <laughs> because you'll just stand there for no reason. Because I found that like if I don't have anything to do, I just stand there if I'm not thinking about it
0: and you burn your joints up. So sit down. You got a chair, sit down in the chair. <laughs> you, you feel it on day two, or in your case, yeah. day three. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is that endurance piece, which, you know, like mental fatigue is crazy, especially like the, I know like when I've gone to some GTs with my Gloom Spike kits, I play with a very rule heavy gits. Like I have like the loon boss, I'll have the mm. sneaky snufflers, I'll have my fanatics. I've got all these different combinations and they've got all these different buff ranges. One's holy within, one's not holy within, one's 12, one 18, one six. One happens at the start of the movement phase? One happens in the hero phase? And I find that I burn myself, just out, Just burn myself out mentally. Um, do you have any advice around like avoiding the mental burnout?
1: um yeah so kind of like what i mentioned before about like practicing your mechanics so you don't have to really think about them um i also (laughs) on the obsessive component i have a binder where i write down all of the rules that i think i need to remember and the like the holy within ranges and stuff very unhealthy and you know all the the bad things you could say about that but it helps me play better so i write down all those rules and like phase by phase too like almost like aos reminders like similar, but I write it, I handwrite it, because I find that I remember it better that way. So
0: whatever yeah, you need
1: to, like, remember your rules, do that.
0: Well, as an adult learning principle, when you write something down and if you color it, you you have a far better rate of retention than it is if you just, like, read it. So okay. I think just there's some corporate speak for you folks. Uh, you learn more when you write it down. But you're right. Like, I tell people to, um, to do, like, AOS Reminders. And it's not that you don't, you might not need it, but just having a checklist to go, right, you know, I'm in the hero phase, it's the thick of the battle. It's more like a checklist. Like, did I cast these three spells? Did I activate this? Did I do this? Um, And it doesn't mean, you know, you're not flicking back forth between battle time, especially like now we've got rules in White Dwarf, rules, some rules in like supplements like Broken Realms or other, other supplements. You're not flicking between books trying to find rules. You know, you've got something that's very clean, it's just easy to find. You can write on it. You can delete certain things. Um, I think checklists are really, really helpful. Uh, and there's been times as well, like I'll print out the, um, uh, I'll print out like the missions and the the deployment maps and I'll draw up like ideal deployments to go, right, well, if the if the things, you know, work well and there's no terrain that's, you know, blocking it, this is how I like to deploy. This is how like I, I, I think about things.
1: Yeah, agreed. I don't know how techless players do it. He knows like, 25 spells or something. Three lore's is two war scroll and then three more. <laughs> 23.
0: Like well, I guess you choose like those couple of spells that you always want to get off, you know. There's you know, there's obviously a big option, but you know, you you know that these are the two or three critical spells in the ideal situation.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of good ones in that Lumineth book, like a lot that people don't use because the other ones are too good. <laughs> but uh but yeah, it, and like you have to And then maybe if you're not, if you know you're not good at retaining that and you still want to be competitive in the time being, maybe pick an army like Giants where it doesn't have as much overhead, right? Like you have to know yourself as a player too. Like if you, if you know that you don't do well, like with an army that's really, really heavy on overhead, then pick one that's not. Like there's, there's competitive options all the way across the spectrum. So.
0: So this uh, at the end of the month, I'm actually going to my first GT in third edition. Finally, my world has reopened, and I'm literally bringing sons with Craggy. Um, <laughs> and part of it is because it's been such a long time, and I haven't seen folks. I just want to chill that weekend. Like you know, winning a winning a 35 player tournament is, is like I'm, It's not a big deal. I'd rather just hang out, have a laugh, you know, have you know, have some jokes, and something that's really low stress and uh, I also want to practice to see what it's like if, you know, people like you creating the dragon meta and kind of highlighting how crazy it is. Well, if there's any copycats in my meta, I'm going to smash them in the face with Kragnost. I'm like, all right, let's go, boys. Let's go, boys, my double break breaker. But again, it's a time for me to practice. So when I go to my major, I've at least had experience to go right well. The craggy double gate breaker didn't quite work as well as I thought it would be because I faced these types of things. Or maybe I overexpected expected that there'd be too many dragons when really actually... People haven't bought it because they don't want to pay for the, the – the cost is too high.
1: Yeah. yeah the Man Crusher is going to get picked on, dude. I've seen that story the play out. <laughs> I couldn't get less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll have a fun time. Cragnos with with uh, 3D6 Great Breakers is excellent
0: that's it yeah. but again like, like, but like you know at least I've got the expectations that look I'm not going in for the ultra aggressive I want to win the game I'm going in for a laugh so my expectations are kind of t- uh, you know pulled back but if I wanted to win it I'd really think about the matter I think about what's coming I think about what's likely to happen uh, and even look at the attendance list that I know and I look at opponents to go right well I see you know X player has been doing really well pre prior to this event with Legion of the first Prince so I need to watch them out can I handle Legion of the first Prince? So, um, looking at you know, the attendance list as well can be really helpful.
1: Yeah. Agreed. I usually don't do that. We've got a local named, uh, Chris Creech. He, we call him binder man, cause he, uh, will go through every person on the roster and then he writes notes based on everybody's list and army choice. And then if he plays you at the tournament, he flips open his binder. He flips to you and then he pulls out his notes.
0: <laughs> I've got a mate called Kieran who does the exact same thing on Facebook. I'll wake up and he'll have like an industrial amount of notes. Um, so maybe I need to like they need to talk to each other, and maybe he can write me a binder. No. But it's um, so, look again like but but you know we've done all the practice, we've done the prep. You know you've got your your good night's sleep. Do you play a lot of tournaments where the battle plans are announced in advance or are they ones that are announced like on the day or, you know, not long before the round starts?
1: Um, I've done both. I, and then I've even seen people, most people hide their battle plans before, like before the roster is locked. So they lock the roster, then they show you the missions. Like that's the standard I see most, but some people even let you see those and i don't like that format because people are going to tool for the pack which i would encourage you to if people are doing that but i would also encourage tournament organizers to not do that because i don't like what that does to the game state for a few different reasons um but then for the ones that you see uh day of it's just kind of another stressor right so like in addition to your like opponent like the the opponent draw for the round you also have to worry about mission draw too so I think that all of those other concepts we've talked about before, like being really up to date on like the core mechanics of your army, and then how at least you know a, a moderate amount of like the other factions of the game, knowing how those work, just gives you less overhead um, so that you can focus more on the mission and the army that you have drawn and how
0: those elements interact with yours. So, play that out for me. So like. If, I, if I'm going to a tournament and the battle plans are not announced, because um, some of them do draw them on the day. Um, I, in Australia, for example, we always announce them um, when the lists are locked in. So we focus on players having their list two weeks before the event. Then the battle plans will be released so people know the five rounds that they'll be playing in. Um, but for some of them, especially in some c- countries, it seems very common that, that list submission in events isn't a thing and they will announce the battle plans on the day so how do you how do you think about the matchup process where you might see a battle plan and you might see an, an opponent is there particular questions you ask your opponent are there particular things that you think about like how do you mentally prepare each round um or what advice would you give a person who, who who's in that process
1: so i'm pretty good at tournaments like you focus on what you can control right so before the pairing process is completed like there's nothing you can do so like there's no point in like spinning yourself up and um like spending a lot of effort thinking about all of the different permutations that could happen if you have no control over the process right so like just try to sit there like and try to you know stay calm like distract yourself with something then when pairings happen then you go to your table and then you like ask your opponent to explain what the army does also ask them for their list too, especially if there hasn't been list submissions to vet those lists. I found a lot of people will make like list submission errors. Like maybe they have like their, their battle regiments or like the wrong units are in them, or they have the wrong regiments in general, or they have some like artifact errors from like, and they just clarify that before the game. Because if you get into the game and then you get to a point where it matters, then it becomes an issue. But it, like pre-game, everything's fine as long as everything's solved before the game starts, right? But um, I, th- I would really encourage tournament organizers to like do the things that you suggested, where like your locking lists, your vetting lists, and then like you want to give the pack. The latest I would ever give out a pack as a tournament organizer is you give out the entire pack before the, before game one, like, and I think that that's a fine standard to have. Um, Because you just you create a lot of friction, like needlessly in your tournament as a tournament organizer, if you're leaving up that many blind spots, like if you're not betting lists, and then you're just randomly doing missions throughout the tournament, you're going to create a lot of friction for yourself, a lot of headache for yourself, for no reason. And it's, it's all headache that can be avoided, I found so
0: yeah and that's why and that's partially why we do lists two weeks in advance um it allows us to also lock out games workshops so if there's an faq or a, a battle tome that hasn't been faq'd um we can lock that out to say no you're using the old version or there's been times where we've we've house ruled to go look maggot the kit of Nogle book is pretty okay we've got a couple of questions like the you know are the trees enforce force multipliers or not so we'll house rule that but otherwise you know, it is very thick and fast. And um, it also obviously helps prepare people and get some exposure and, and and think about things in advance. But I want to talk a little bit about the actual match-up process. And um, one thing that I don't think players do well enough is the pre-game discussion. Because I think a lot of the problems that might happen at the tabletop could have been avoided through an early discussion and avoiding potential i gotchas and i think part of it is the question and the conversation right because for me that first five to ten minutes is important to build some rapport to understand the type of game somebody has if they're new to the game if there's someone who um wants intention declared simple things like um what happens if a dice rolls onto a piece of terrain and isn't flat do we both agree that we re-roll that dice or you know, like what is the, what is the format that we're going to play? And so that when we're in the thick of the battle um, we're on the same page, I don't know how you see the game. That's certainly what I try to do kind of set an expectation and try to understand my opponent, but how does that initial conversation work for you? And um, is there any particular questions or things that you want to know from your opponents? There's no, I gotchas or feel bads.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, like pregame, you're trying to establish etiquette, like you're, you're like you're saying, like, like whatever the standard is. Like, if you want to, if you want a game without takebacks, it's fine. Like, you're just your opponent, and you have to be on the same page because that's one of the worst feel bad mechanics that you can have in a game. Is when you're like, okay, well, you can take it back, and then they don't reciprocate, and then it's just like, then you just kind of awkwardly stare at each other for the rest of the game, and it's like it's terrible. You've ruined the experience for the outcome of the game, which is something that. That's one of the worst things you can do I think like we're all spending a lot of money and time to go play these games and there's not a lot of payoff like I tell you like I won LVO like there's no payoff like so we
0: we talked about that like there's literally like your life doesn't change like you know the best you often get is like a trophy and maybe like a start collecting box like not paying bills with winning LVO or Adepticon like we're all just having fun and
1: like and all of the good change I've had in my life is like counterintuitive in that like because I go, I, I like to think that I go out of my way to have really good etiquette in games and like, like really form like good relationships at these tournaments. Like that's where all the changes come from in my life is making all the friends that I've made at these tournaments and then having the games that I've had at these tournaments. It's not the outcome of the tournaments from my perspective. I know, like it's fine, whatever. Don't believe me. I won LVO. It's fine, but that's hadn't the way. You
0: hadn't mentioned that.
1: <laughs> that's the uh, that's the, the for, that's the way I see it. Is that like the friends I've made along the way and the games I've had are like if there's something life changing about the game, that's where it's at. So,
0: all right, I want to talk about something competitive that kind of hit my radar this morning. So I, I missed part of this and I had to loop back. So my mate Gareth in the chat had had asked me for, and I think it's a, a, a worthy question. So Vince Ventrella on of Warhammer Weekly Fame. Had mentioned something in literally twenty-four hours ago on Warhammer Weekly this week, talking about um, tournaments, and specifically he was talking about rankings and tournaments and the the importance of rankings or the or, or maybe the lack of importance. And he thought maybe people overfocus on rankings like the ITC or the Masters or you know your position in faction has being number one player in faction, top 10 in America. Has it ever been important to you? Is it important? Why would it be important if it is? Um, Because I don't agree with his statement, by the way. I'll put it out there right now. I think he was way overblown with his statement around, um, you know, that rankings do matter. I think it's a great way to build a competitive scene. I don't think it's overly important. Your life doesn't change when you're the best glimpse bite player. But I think it's great to compete in a friendly manner against yourself and your opponent. How well can I do uh, in my faction, in my country, in my my state? And what can I do to myself as opposed to I must be number one on the rankings because there's no payoff.
1: Yeah, like I said, there's no payoff, like you said. Um, I didn't even know what the rankings were until, like, my third GT win. And then someone told me about it and they're like, I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's pretty cool. There's a website that has a number by by your name and it's cool to make your name go up high. And then I guess it's pretty cool for your name to be at the top of the list, but it doesn't like really have any effect on your life. Um, and I, I think the only way you'd make those rankings like actually matter because like talking to people, most people, there's not a lot of people who actually care about ITC rankings. I don't think like there may, I don't think there's over a thousand people. Like, I think there's a few hundred that like actively check that and like really, really care about it. Um, and the way that you would make it matter more is if you attached money to that ranking and that's like a whole nother can of worms that I don't necessarily think the game's ready for. I think there needs to be a lot of structure in place before like that is on the table. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really care about the ranking. Like it's just a snapshot in time. Like at some point someone's going to be higher than me. And at some point, like there's people on that list that are lower than me, that are every bit as good as me, or better than me. Like, like that ranking doesn't mean you're the best player in the world. It means that you have the most points that, uh, that these people that that someone has decided are important based on a certain metric that you performed well in. It doesn't, and that and that metric is not actual gameplay
0: skill, in my opinion. So I travel cool. a lot I, and I,
1: I got a big score,
0: but uh i couldn't agree with you more because my my ego and my uh, re- my reputation is not tied to my rankings on the ladder so you know we're all in different life positions um some people can travel some people can't travel some people can't afford it some people have kids and they can't leave their kids over weekends so to attend big events that provide big points um for attending those events for the the rankings you know, some for some people, they can't do it. Does that mean they're not the best player in the world or the best player in their region? Well, no, just because you're on a ranking. But I also think there's a lot of benefit in it because it does create, we all like ladders. We all follow sports teams or some type of, I think it's the what it means to us. And um, for me, it's always been about friendly competition for myself. How high can I get myself onto the rankings? Um, and And it pushes me with a goal. Um, over a competitive season and as opposed to, you know, I need to be top 10 because I'm the best and I'm going to be a creator and then I'm going to tell everybody how amazing I am and, like, hmm. there's no there's no flow-on effect to, to, to any of these rankings.
1: Yeah, it does. It gives really good exposure and networking opportunities, though. I think that's the most value that the latter provides is it gets people talking about each other's regions, which is really important, especially as I think things start to open back up, like, that's how the game is going to grow is that we all start going to each other's stuff. And then from there, that'll just create more growth, I think. So, and in that regard, it's important, but like actual value of the ranking or what that ranking means, it doesn't mean that whoever is the number one ranked player is the best player in the world. I don't think it means that, but I guess somebody does. So,
0: no, 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 not, no, certainly I've never seen a player with like, I'm number one ranked ITC player and no. walk around and, you know, it's on their Tinder profile and things <laughs> no. like, you know. <laughs> it's, it's not going to get you chicks, dude. I promise. It's not an accomplishment. I've, no. I've, I've, see, I've seen on LinkedIn either, just, you know, anyone <laughs> who's looking to make that transition <laughs> to the corporate world. It doesn't help with LinkedIn. That's no. a couple of burning questions, I guess, would kind of wrap things up because I think we could talk a lot about this. And I think, I think if I think about majority of this discussion, what happens at a tournament is a payoff to everything you do before the tournament. The thinking about the list, it's the discussion with friends and other people in the community. It's looking at the meta. It's deliberate practice. It's having you know thoughts about what's happening on deployment. Thinking about battle plans. Thinking about um, what are the what are the battle tactics I would use. Um, it's it's there's so many things that happen that leads up to the tournament. That if you want to win this tournament, you know, I guess you, if you're at this point and you haven't got it yet, it's about the preparation. So if you want to do well at a tournament, it's about finding a list, sticking to the list, practicing with the list, and then making better decisions on the table because you've done all the things that have happened before. Because there's been plenty of times where you rock up to a tournament, you haven't done the most amount of practice, and you're a bit of a deer in headlights. Yep, agreed. So. It's like anything else, probability.
1: Yeah, it's like anything else. You got to practice to be good at it, and then like the the obsessive people naturally get better. So if you want to be good, dude, be unhealthy and and how obsessive you are about the game, which is easy to do. So,
0: do you think priority is important? i like, not priority. Um, like drops, because I know you um had won seven out of eight drops uh deployments uh through the tournament. I think there's only one time where one of your opponents was able to outdrop you. Did that play a big part? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about battle regimen and the importance of battle regimen and, you know, should it even exist? Um, do you build your lists around the the race to the bottom, like the lowest drops possible?
1: Um, it's just you have to evaluate the tools and, like, the different ways your book projects power. Like, Seraphon can be a really high drop. Like Living City wants to be low drop because you want to put people in the first turn, because the threat of double turn with anything that's very damage oriented is going to be more important than going first a lot of the time. I found. Um, but yeah, you just have to adapt to whatever your book does well. I found. And then I think it's good that battle regiments matter um because in in the way that they are able to make your opponent they're able to force your opponent to go first. Right. Because if the game state ever gets to a point where like I can build a list that goes first and wins at like a substantial win rate, like then the game has been lost and needs to be reworked. Like at the end of 2.0, like you can build low drop KO and like consistently in the game on turn one, that's bad for the game state. Um Whereas like you really want your game to develop into the, like the third, fourth, fifth rounds. So I think that's where a lot of the magic happens. So.
0: Which is why I've really enjoyed Sigma having that scissor paper rock. I think you see it in 40k a bit more that you see these runaway um, lists where, you know, one or two factions just has some really powerful tools and it becomes the list. While Sigma certainly has like, well, you know, this kind of list is really doing really well and it does well against this list, but there's a strong counter as well. So it's always been like a bit of a scissor paper rock in most cases. Um, There's never been too big of a runaway um, in our game. Yeah,
1: I agree although um that that book release feck i heard some nightmares about that and then the uh the daughters of Cain when it came out the first time with Witch
0: elf Horde. i've heard stories of that so yeah i mean like i was around when grizzle Girl first came out um and you know like you know, like they did they did cause a bit of havoc and they did get kind of reined in with the FAQ, but I smashed them with, with bloody fanatics. Um, <laughs> take the charge with a whole bunch of goblins, inspiring presents to make sure they didn't die, then release five fanatics and absolutely annihilate them and then wow. they ran in. But like, again, like scissor, paper, rock, uh, gits. Nah, speaking of gits, actually, last question, and uh, I do have to go interview somebody for a job. Mm. Um <laughs> ironically (laughs) enough i go from youtube interview to corporate interview there you go gloom spike is your faction you're going to play this week this weekend at lone star but also i guess the the upcoming rest of the season right so you've got the new itc season you've got the new texas master season what are you thinking about how are you planning do you have a faction in mind are you exploring a concept like what are you thinking for the future
1: uh, no plan. Um, There's always like, one of the my favorite things to do is pick an army at the last second and then like the mad dash to get it ready in two weeks. I've done that a lot. And I found that for some reason I like that in my head. I hate it. And then I I wind up doing it every time. So that means I have to like it. Right. But um, well, I was
0: gonna—I was gonna ask you the opposite question. I was gonna say, how long should I choose my faction before I get to a GT? And folks, don't listen to Gavin on this no, one. That's terrible. Like, advice. Reali- realistically, like, how soon should I kind of start to think about settling my list, my faction? Yeah, if uh, it
1: depends on how much time because time is relative, right? So, like, if you have the ability to play a lot of games in two weeks, then two weeks can be enough. Where most people can only allocate so much time to the game. So like if you can play once a week, then you need to line that up over time and give yourself enough time to practice. Right. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In the, in the ideal world for the average Joe, um, you know, I would really be trying to settle on my faction, you know, three to two months out again, depending on, do I own the models? Don't I own the models? Do I have to paint? How much do I want to paint? Um, for some people, it could just be adding an extra character. For some people, it could be painting a whole bunch of units. And it depends on how much time you paint. But really, three months out, I'm trying to think about what exactly I want to run. By about two months out, I really want to kind of start settling. And I'm almost like 60, 70% kind of nailed. And I, I just need to settle. So then I practice. And, you know, really, by about a month out at best, I've kind of settled on my list. So um that's obviously the average but you know depending on how long you've been playing your faction and the models you own and your financial and time situation yeah they they can fluctuate but um don't leave it to the last minute to like what i see people do painting painting the night before and (laughs) you've had very little practice because um you'll, you'll burn yourself out i think that's probably what i've seen competitively
1: yeah agreed the healthy way is what you said the bad way
0: is what i do
1: (laughs) you're the one who won the lvo you're the one who won
0: lvo so maybe we should all just pick up our faction two weeks before listed and just like just just yolo it
1: yeah i guess
0: Any final things you want to share to the folks? Certainly, if people want to hear more from Gavin, you're on Twitter. I'll put your I'll put your details in the description. I think I've forgotten to put them in there. But more importantly, you're on uh, YouTube. You've got a cool podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very raw. Um, Harambe's <laughs> Heroes <laughs> uh, with the gorilla. Yo. There you go.
1: Yeah, <laughs> with very low production quality, but the content you, is halfway decent. So
0: <laughs> you remind me of my crew. Well, one of my crews in Australia called Measured Gaming. They are uh, Uh, i think you you guys would get along really well it's just like raw competitive uh no filter just um just just have having a laugh but uh, i'd highly recommend people go check out harambe's heroes on youtube i don't know if you're actually in podcast form despite being called the podcast But uh, (laughs) you do do chats and they're quite interesting yeah i appreciate all the shout outs um i think you've got it all covered
1: um and i always appreciate you having me on man it was a really good talk so
0: that's a pleasure. Well, I expect a bit of hospitality when the Warhammer <laughs> open Dallas. No, Austin, Austin. I fly into Dallas, Austin. but uh, if uh, assuming that you, the dates come out and hopefully they come out, you know, for the GHB, love to come. But if nothing more, I'll see you at the LVO. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, well, I hope, hope everyone enjoyed that. I'm going to do the outro, but uh, Gavin, thanks again for your time. And I'm going to go to legitimate work. Thanks for sticking (laughs) around until the end. I hope you found that video interesting and you walked away with a few new ideas. If you did, I would appreciate it if you hit like on the video as well as left me a comment. Let me know what your thoughts are in the comment section below.